The following podcast is produced on the lands of the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to the second episode of Bite Your Thumb, a podcast in which I will explore my complete disdain for what is arguably Shakespeare's most well-known play, Romeo and Juliet. This week I am so excited to be chatting with another very special guest that has treaded many a board across the world. He got his start training and performing at the National Comedy Theatre in Phoenix, Arizona before moving to Australia and getting involved with the Improv Conspiracy Group and where he currently teaches at the University of Melbourne. He is the co-founder of The Sooth Players, known for their festival favourites Completely Improvised Potter, the upcoming Completely Improvised Austin and of course Completely Improvised Shakespeare, which was a nominee for Best Comedy at the 2019 Melbourne Fringe Festival. Who best to partner the worlds of Elizabethan theatre and Chicago-style improv than with my guest this week, Adam Hembry? Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Romeo and Juliet, do you love it or hate it? What's your feeling? Uh, I'm going to go with love it, although I've spent a lot of time hating how people talk about it. Okay, you might not want to listen to the rest of my podcast then. (laughs) (laughs) I am not kind. (laughs) That's that's good. That's good. (laughs) So tell me what it is you love about it. What, what? Just what? Just why? <laughs> um, I'm gonna go. One of the things I love about it is that, like a lot of sort of um, things that people take from Shakespeare, it's not at all what people use it for. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so for example, you know the phrase "I wear my heart on my sleeve." Um, it's a very common trope for people who are uh, open and honest, and it's a compliment. Um, but that line is spoken by Iago, and he means it as an insult. Uh, he mm. says that people who do that are stupid and that they sh- they get what they deserve, basically, which is that people walk all over them. Uh, and so I think it's really funny that people use it as like a heart a heartfelt, wholesome phrase to describe people they like, even though I agree that it's a good thing to do that in general. People treat Romeo and Juliet like this classic uh, great love story, uh, and it's absolutely not that. <laughs> like It's, it's just 100% not a heartwarming love story. And even as a great love tragedy, so to speak, it doesn't leave you feeling good about love. That's not what it's for Mm, exactly (laughs) at the like most historical evidence about how it would have been received at the time does not indicate that that's what it was for it's Mm -mm. it's half a comedy that turns tragedy uh and it's meant to be about how stupid some kinds of love are (laughs) i couldn't agree more and i think when i read it for the first time because i was 14 when i read it for the first time and i think that was very appropriate (laughs) and i think that was the problem and kind of the problem i still have with the play is people are like, oh, it's the, it's the most legendary greatest love story of all time. And it's like, have you actually read it? It's pretty terrible. (laughs) All bad things happening. And actually I was talking with a friend and she said, she's heard people say like, oh, you're the Romeo to my Juliet. It's like, are you sure? (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) I hope not. That's so exhausting a relationship. I don't want to teach you how to be better. That's not my job. No, no, no. I want to meet you at the end of that journey, Romeo. I just want you to survive it. (laughs) Just survive. Don't go to the chemist and get some poison. Yeah, no. Don't listen to a priest. How many times do we have to learn this? Oh my god. (laughs) I have problems with the. That's a whole other kettle of fish. (laughs) My problems with the priest. Just all the friars. 
uh, look, I did Catholic school all the way through up oh, until really? now. So yeah, I like, can relate. So did you touch on Shakespeare? Was that a thing when you were going through Catholic school? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a great, um, a great teacher in eighth grade for like a a term we did mm. drama and we sort of glanced at Shakespeare and some of that but then in her English class the next year same teacher she had us do Romeo and Juliet and had us get up and learn a little bit of stage combat before we even read the text mm. and then she got a bunch of us to like role play Montagues and Capulets for act one scene one oh and gosh. where we have to like scream insults at each other uh, and then have a big clash and then someone would do a reading of that first the, the prologue, two households, both alike in dignity and fair Verona, et cetera, et cetera. I always felt like I probably owe her for having any interest in Shakespeare at all because we had to actually put it on its feet and, and figure out what it was physically about. Actually, when I reread um, Act One and you get that fight, that fight between the Capulet and the Montagues, and one of my favorite bits was seeing also the citizens come in. So it's not just the Capulets and the Montagues, the citizens come in with clubs I just thought that was fantastic. It's like, I've seen Romeo and Juliet a couple of times. I've never seen citizens with clubs. Someone no. should take advantage of that. I think a lot of our imaginations of these plays are all about the leads. And we kind mm. of focus on these grand encounters between, mm. uh, between people who bandy back and forth. But a lot of um, Shakespeare's plays, even the comedies, have this really dark atmosphere um, where mm. there's civil unrest. Um, you know, what, that's, that's how Romeo and Juliet begins, when civil, bl civil blood makes civil hands yeah, unclean. Mm. And it's, it's meant to be a situation in which anything could happen at any point. Uh, knives are always about to come out, and there's no civil order. That's, that's how, <laughs> weirdly, that's how comedies usually start, is how every, everything's in danger of, of going up in flames at any moment, and you have to set it to rights. For people um, who are listening who might not be too familiar with what you do, so I think a lot of people, especially in the Melbourne comedy scene, would be familiar with your completely improvised series of shows. So for, in case people don't know, could you just give maybe a quick rundown of what those shows are and how they work? Yeah, sure thing. We started five years ago doing completely improvised Shakespeare at Melbourne Fringe. And that is basically a one hour play that's made up on the spot using Shakespearean language and tropes and genres. And we asked the uh, audience for a title of a play that quote Shakespeare could have written but did not but they give us that title and then we do the rest there's no planning or anything like that and after um, a few years of doing that we started producing a Harry Potter theme show as well which is like a year at Hogwarts that you've never seen before mm -hmm. and we were going to debut at this past comedy festival rest in peace an improvised Jane Austen show but that one will have to wait, unfortunately. Yeah, because I was looking at your website and I saw the completely improvised Austin, and I was wondering if you got a chance to perform it. But sadly, no, we 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 were rehearsing it and got to got to sort of build it up and got it ready to go. But oh, unfortunately, yeah, have to pump that, the brakes. Oh, that is the real tragedy there. Oh my good, I would have because I was very excited, as many people were, for this year's Belmont Comedy Festival, and when yeah. that got cancelled, oh, uh, definitely rest in peace. All right, like okay. it needed it needed to happen, but oh. it was a bit like losing Christmas. Do you have plans to come back in? 2021? Yeah, our feeling on this is when our players feel safe to do that, then we will we will do it. Because um, it was, you know, we're doing this for our fun. And when we found that other people enjoyed watching it, then that was a great bonus. It's hard to have fun if you think you might be in danger or you think you might be putting your audience or their friends or immunocompromised family in danger. As soon as we feel like that uh, is something we feel safe doing, then then we're, we're ready. Whether that's the end of this year or whether we have another wave in us, I don't know. I'm, mm. I'm really hopeful it ends soon. Yeah, me too. And that's a very safe and considered way to do it. So I'm glad you're 
not just leaping back into it. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, we, we have to be cautious about agreeing to anything as well, because um, a contract is a, is a contract and venues are incentivized to try to keep the show up as long as they can until mm-hmm. government tells them to close. And I understand why that's, you know, that's how they have to run their business, but we have to then be careful because it, it will become possibly up to us to cancel the show before it's mm-hmm. up to a venue. And that's not a burden you want to wear as an independent artist. <laughs> You would get that prompt from audience, so so a play that Shakespeare could have written but didn't. So are there any sort of prominent sort of ideas that get thrown at you from the audience? Is there something you like come back to again and again, or is it different every time? Like completely different? It um it's always different. We we generally do from the title get a pretty good vibe of whether that title suggests a certain genre. For example, uh, the Merry Men of Doncaster sounds like a comedy, um, but Henry the Fifteenth sounds like a history, um, mm. or like uh, Behead Them, which is one we actually did, was a tragedy. Like that, that was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of asking for that, right? Mostly, we have just those few words, and sometimes there's an obvious sort of pop culture pull or a current events pull. Like we did a Brexit show because, of course, um, we did a Trump show because, of course. Uh, two or three Trump shows, actually. Eventually, we had to start being like, no, we've done that. Um, let's let's get another one. Um, <laughs> but usually then, once, that, once those few words are thrown out, then it becomes up to whoever's inspired to walk forward and give a prologue, like many Shakespeare plays have. Uh, um, yeah. And then it's that person's job to set an atmosphere. And from that, we tend to pull a genre and we might have a little bit of recent history or context for what's about what just has happened. And then it's our job to make whatever happens next happened, which is a bit different than Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Romeo and Juliet sort of stands out as really giving the whole game away from from the beginning. Yeah, exactly right. They just tell you right in the beginning that this is not going to end well, so don't yeah. keep your hopes up. Star-crossed lovers, they try, they fail. So sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Watch it all fall apart. Yeah, when how- we were teaching ourselves how to do prologues, our director mm-hmm. at the time, uh, Andrew Strano, was like, don't do a Romeo and Juliet prologue. <laughs> 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 Don't make promises. You're gonna have to keep. Keep. Oh, so yeah. so, in terms of like Romeo and Juliet sticking apart from sort of the other plays, is that what you're trying to avoid when you're in a sort of improv space? You just stay away from that sort of story. Yeah, because um, if you say we will do A and then B and then C, then that's just an extra track your improvisers have to have running in the background at all times mm-hmm. to make sure they did B before A and a- or before C and after A. Um, mm-hmm. And you're already juggling enough trying to create characters on the spot and make relationships and stuff. So yeah, you want to yeah. give a first step, not the six after it. Exactly right. It kind of defeats the purpose of improv as well, because they're just trying to keep track in the back of their minds, oh, I've got to do this, but then yeah. you might as well be doing a scripted show. Right. Sooth Players, you started in 2015. What was the sort of inception of the Sooth Players? So you started it with um, Ryan Patterson, I believe? That's right. Yeah, Ryan Patterson, who I knew a little bit through the Improv Conspiracy. He had been playing there for a while, and I was uh, a student there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And right near the end of being a student there, he and I both took a workshop with Jenny Lovell, who is a performer at Impro Melbourne, another company Mm. here in Melbourne. And she did a workshop on improvising in Shakespearean style. And she had done work at the Globe before and is a really experienced actor. And the workshop was great. It was like a weekend intensive. Uh, That's where I met a handful of people actually who I still work with either at Impro Melbourne or otherwise. And after that workshop, Ryan messaged me and said, "Uh, would you want to keep doing that? Because I do. (laughs) And I was like, um, hell yes, I would, obviously. (laughs) And basically, we just sent messages to 
people who we thought would like it. Mm -hmm. And we kind of expected that most people would be like, Shakespeare, nah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, whatever year it was, it's 2015, like, no thanks. And we put posts on a couple of Facebook groups that we were in. And most anybody who put their hand up at that point, and we knew were nice humans, we were like, yeah, come on, give this a try. And then after a few weeks of rehearsing and talking about it, we signed up for Melbourne Fringe Festival just to make ourselves do it. Uh, and then we were like, well, I guess we better do this. Um, and we found a director and then we started working on format. Uh, and then we had a really great season uh, at Melbourne Fringe and we mm -hmm. haven't, haven't stopped doing festivals since. Yeah, and you really hit the nail on the head because, yeah, some people would think, oh, Shakespeare, that's going to be boring. No one's going to like that. But then 2019, you get nominated for Best Comedy at Fringe. So yeah, it was a nice just, full circle moment. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so something I'm really interested in because improv is an art in of itself, but then incorporating Shakespeare or Shakespearean type language and doing that on the fly. How do you kind of train your brain to speak like that? Because it can't be easy. I, I won't say it's easy. I will say that it's easier than you think, because I think that there's a few things a lot of people forget, which is one that Shakespeare's not speaking a different version of English. It is modern English that uh, Shakespeare and his contemporaries speak. And it doesn't take a whole lot to make what you're saying sound like what they would say. It's really like a couple of cosmetic differences in pronouns, like learning how to use thou and thee and ye, as opposed to you and you. <laughs> and then there's a few other kind of word ending tricks that you can learn. So like learning how to use doth uh, instead of does, or like putting the E-T-H uh, on the end of verbs that would have S's. Like sounds really pedantic and grammatical, but honestly, it's like change these two things about your sentences and suddenly you sound Shakespearean. I don't mean to minimize the task of using the language like that, but I just mean that the barrier to entry is not as high as it seems. And then once you're past that, you can start learning some of the more complex meter and rhythm stuff, but that is, that's not a requisite to make your audience feel like they're in an Elizabethan atmosphere. Not that you're taking open auditions at the moment to be part <laughs> of the Sooth Players, but if someone wanted to learn how to naturally speak like that and get in tune with that sort of language what sort of advice would you give to someone if they wanted to go into a very niche format mm. like that say it out loud Re read it out loud like the only the only way to get it in your mouth is to make your mouth make those shapes uh so mm -hmm. listening to people give those speeches is is helpful uh just because it helps you sort of know what a good example or strong well-trained example looks like mm. um so you know listening to Lawrence Fishburne deliver some Othello speeches or Judy Dench uh, do Titania mm -hmm. like th that's you know that's helpful but nothing is a substitute for you just saying saying the words over and over again making it sound like you mean what you're saying getting some of the tricky consonant differences or rhythms to feel normal to you mm -hmm. um, and then it becomes a lot easier to to make it up because you are at least more fluent in in that register. Hopefully that's really touched home with some improv actors out there that are willing to go Shakespearean. That's gonna <laughs> really help. <laughs> uh, the other thing I would say is to stop treating it like a like a priceless vase uh, in a museum because nice. you're you're gonna you're gonna sound less like language and more like you know Shakespeare voice, which isn't very fun. No, um, exactly. <laughs> like and if you have yeah. this like withering respect for it, you're you're mm. you're gonna butcher it really. Exactly. And I think I touched on this in my first episode as well, because um, I read through the entire play from start to finish for the first time since high school. And I just immediately thought, like, because there's so much, there's dick talk, there's talk about drugs, there's yeah. questionable moments about consent. Oh, yeah. And people just hold it up on this 
on this plinth that's like, oh, it's the jewel in the Western canon of literature. It's like, no, it's pretty, it's pretty down and gangster. Can I rant for a second? Because I, I literally, we're going to further date this moment, but I looked at it. <laughs> I looked at a headline from some Florida newspaper, and mm -hmm. I think a pretty well-renowned Shakespeare scholar was responsible for this. I didn't dignify it with a, a link click, um, but <laughs> the headline is something to the effect of, uh, what does uh, what Hamlet has to teach us about Black Lives Matter? Oh my goodness! This is terrible. This is why we can't have nice things. It's oh, horrific. It's why? Okay. Why? Hamlet has nothing to teach us about Black Lives Matter. <laughs> it is it is a play about a privileged white boy having privileged white boy problems, and he's insufferable about it for three and a half hours. Oh. <laughs> and like, it has literally nothing to teach us about Black Lives Matter. But it's a it's a perfect example of this way of treating Shakespeare like he's perfect. Mm. And like he's applicable to every situation and like he has universal truth and like it is the worst way to mm. look at Shakespeare. I just, Yikes. I hate it so much. I hate it, hate it, hate it. <laughs> oh, I, I am intrigued though. I do want to read that article and just see how wrong it is. Because you're definitely right. Hamlet is just... <laughs> Just white boy incel ranting for if you wanted years. if you wanted to have an episode about a play I hated. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, be the, that'll be the that'll be the that'll be the We'll follow that one. Follow I that hate, one up. Yeah. I hate Hamlet, and you'll um, be you'll be guest number one. <laughs> look, I can be a big old crank about Shakespeare too. I don't mean mm. to sound uncritical about Romeo and Juliet. I I absolutely am. It has <laughs> it has some unquestionable misogyny. It's got some mm. some real problematic stuff about what mm. women owe men and the scenes between Juliet and her dad are just crushing like they're really oh horrible. Oh my gosh oh yes that just blew my mind because I completely forgotten about that he at one point he says I'm literally going to drag you into the church if you don't agree to do this. Yeah and he says then what is it he said he's like hang starve die in the streets thou yes. baggage or something like that he's this is his 14 or 15 year old daughter He's 13 year to. old yeah, yeah, yeah. not reached the summer of her 14th year old that's right that's is. right it's like Forget oh that. you are young <laughs> yeah can you you remember being 13 like oh like it, <laughs> you've just opened up a door i don't know oh my god back through oh my, oh my god it's horrific and like this i realized that some of that horrible stuff is actually it's available for modern interpretation to make different than it was mm. then like we react to that with real horror Whereas people at that time might have actually sort of just been like, yeah, yeah, my dad said that to me. Uh, yeah, just or, last week. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, oh, that's fair enough. He is her dad. And I, I'll bracket that by saying there's probably a lot of people today who would who would say or do a version of that as well. Mm. So I'm not, I don't mean to minimize that our 2020 version of that father-daughter relationship totally exists. And, mm. and I think the play gives us a chance to explore that, even though some of the distinct words are horrifying and, and different. Oh, way. absolutely. And you can't take something like that face value because obviously it's very much of its time. But like, as you said, there's versions of like, of that in real life and in media in 2020. And that kind of leads to my next question as well. It's like, why do you think, because obviously plays like Othello and Hamlet and all of the like War of the Roses type King plays they live on. Mm -hmm. But Romeo and Juliet, it just, it's on a different platform. It just, even if people have never read Romeo and Juliet, they just know the story and they think it's this incredible thing. So why do you think it's just has this godlike sort of reputation? Yeah, it does. I think Romeo and Juliet is uniquely positioned among Shakespeare's plays because of mm. two things. One, um, all of Shakespeare's plays get this elevated status because of British Empire. 
So mm. for hundreds of years, Britain has more or less used Shakespeare as kind of a voice of empire, like a, a sign of your Britishness, a sign of uh, higher intellect and education, um, you know, disregarding the fact that he was writing for common people and more of a, um, <laughs> more as a, as our director, Andrew used to say, he's more of a Jerry Bruckheimer than an indie, <laughs> you know, like it's, anyway, disregarding all of that, like he's always, he always gets this status in any conversation as like a canonical dead white boy. Um, but even among his plays, Romeo and Juliet has the sort of uh, advantage of being apparently all about love. Um, and nothing sells better than stories about love. Um, not necessarily saying they're the best stories, but if you look at so much popular music, a lot of high grossing films, there is a formula that we follow, which is um, in many ways a, a way to sell romantic relationships. And so because it's one of his plays which centers a relationship that falls apart uh, and really has dramatizes what looks to be something like intense, unconditional love, something that can be packaged as intense, unconditional love, something that looks like it's aiming towards the quote unquote dream of like a, a, a you know, a, a perfect monogamous wealthy family with 2.5 kids and a dog. Like, it looks like it's heading that way. Like, that's why Taylor Swift re revises it to be, you'll be the prince and I'll be the princess. It's a love story. Mm. Just say yes. Um, because I think, <laughs> side rant, that song, <laughs> that song is like a perfect example of how the 20th and 21st century see Romeo and Juliet. It's, it's such a perfect construction. There it is. You want to know what little Taylor Swift was sold as a teenager. And there it is. That, there that's it. it. Is. And, and that's how people sell Romeo and Juliet still. Yeah, over and over again. Exactly. And I think being in a classroom an all, at an all girls school, like that's the perfect audience for Romeo and Juliet and any sort of adaptation or recreation that comes out of that sort of story. They're just expecting us to gobble it up. Oh yeah. And for some reason that just flew over my head and I was like, no, sir, this is stupid. <laughs> I always I always show this music video to my uni students when I'm running tutorials on Romeo and Juliet uh, mm -hmm. or in English class in general. And one of the one of my students pointed out this past semester that that video, the the costumes are not at all Renaissance. They're like no. Jane Austen. They're like yes. Regency <laughs> England, um, which totally went right past me the first time I saw it. And then I looked at it again. I was like, that's absolutely it. This is basically a layering of Pride and Prejudice on top of a version of Romeo and Juliet getting sold as a rom-com. And I was like, oh my Bleh. God. And I think I remember in that music video as well, don't they do like a line dance or something oh, yeah. like that? Yeah, so there's like, like some a sort of Regency dance. It's like, no. Yep. <laughs> yep. The whole, the whole deal with the hand palm to palm, like going around in a circle and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, we just gobbled it up, didn't we? Of course. Of course. <laughs> Considering that you do tend to keep away from that sort of setting up everything that Romeo and Juliet does in your show, in the completely improvised shows, if you had to completely improvise Romeo and Juliet or do a love story sort of thing, like have you done that in a show? Have you done down like that fatal love story thing? And how did it work out in that sort of context? Yeah, we've actually mapped that structure in a lot of different ways. And the fun mm -hmm. thing about it is that you can use it for a comedy or a tragedy. Mm. Um, because Romeo and Juliet, really up until Tybalt and Romeo fight, mm. uh, slash Tybalt and Mercutio and Romeo fight, it is a comedy. It's not a tragedy. Even though a prologue tells you it's going to be. Everything else about that is, like, has all the stereotypical tropes of an Italian comedy, which is mm. to say you have a grumpy old dad who's making it hard on his daughter. You have a lovesick young 
poet um, who's really more in love with love than he is with an actual person. Uh, you've got his friends who make lots of dick jokes and make fun of him for being in love because, mm -hmm. um, uh, because misogyny. <laughs> and uh, and then what's meant to happen is that hijinks ensue. Uh, they are, um, there's always the threat of danger, but most violence is either comical or uh, able to be healed. And in the end, there is a marriage uh, and the dad permits it and yada, yada, yada. Um, it's a love story, just say yes. Um, <laughs> but um, when, when, when the threat of violence becomes real, when Mercutio gets stabbed, the play is instantly a tragedy from then forward. Then mm -hmm. it's suddenly everyone has to deal with the consequences of their feelings. Uh, and it's just um, inevitable consequence to inevitable consequence uh, to questionable choices with a priest to mm -hmm. end. <laughs> um, and we then are able to either play that uh, for a tragedy and do that kind of thing where at some point the tensions boil over and there's mm -hmm. a murder, uh, mm -hmm. or um, we set things right. Uh, and whatever way that takes. So sometimes for our plays, because we like to think of what we do as um, revising Shakespeare as much as improvising it, sometimes our um, love interests learn something about themselves and don't need marriage at the end. Oh, um, sometimes sometimes the, the love story is not a uh, heteronormative one. Sometimes uh, people learn how to make friends. Um, <laughs> and sometimes everything seems fine until the 45 minute mark and then someone dies and we have to figure out what the hell is happening. <laughs> um, but I guess to really answer your question, yes, we have used that trope. We have mapped it out and had it work well. And we've also mapped it out and had it be hard because um, Romeo and Juliet is hard in terms of genre because of that flip partway through. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've loved every second. I've loved Aww. the ranting. So don't apologize for ranting because that's what it's all about. Otherwise it would just be me. And Good. No you were so it. worried when I said I love to play. <laughs> I was like, oh no. No, that, no, I can't talk to just people that hate it because otherwise that would get pretty boring. So just to kind of wrap things up, obviously we're not going to be able to see your wonderful shows um, for a little while, but is there anything you'd like to plug or promote in the meantime that people can get behind while we're waiting for festivals to come back? Oh gosh, yeah. I know that Melbourne Fringe Festival is aiming to come back in November of 2020. I don't know mm -hmm. the, the full details on that, but stay tuned. There's gradually easing restrictions on some things. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I would say at this point mostly is stay safe uh, and find the people who are responding to this by making content online. Like, uh, mm. I don't expect my artist friends to have the spoons to do that necessarily, but there are people who do. And they're, and they're making some really fun work. They're doing it in platforms that we're not used to, like TikTok, for example. And because of the, um, also the, the rise of these movements like Black Lives Matter in the States, there are more content creators of color that are getting exposure by uh, people who are really kind of um, bumping their signals. And I would say, go look, go find them because they're, they're easier to find now than ever before. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of our actor, Friend, a lot of my actor friends and I have been playing D&D &D, uh, on, oh. on Zoom to get our yes. improv fix. And there are so many great actual play D&D &D podcasts and um, video roundtables around right mm. now. Um, there's the, the Black AF TTRPG roundtable, which I found incredible. If you do any kind of role-playing games, like definitely go watch, watch them and go look at their work. When comedy does come back, and it will come back in Melbourne, mm. it's gonna blow up. So get excited mm -hmm. for that. All these people who've been sitting on shows 
and who have been working up the, the courage to write something or had something almost ready, they're all going to come out of the woodwork at once and it's going to be a feeding frenzy as far as audiences go. So just mm. just um, follow people to, to like on Instagram. Um, that includes people like Sooth Players, Impro Melbourne, Improv Conspiracy. Um, but also there are heaps of other sort of venues you can look to to find up and coming writers. If you follow things like uh, the Wheeler Center or the Melbourne Young Writers Festival or the Melbourne Writers Festival, um, uh, then yeah, there's always people there for you to find. Um, and that's exciting. What I am trying to do as well at the end of every podcast is finish on a Shakespearean insult. So if you have uh, a favorite insult or one you'd like to come up with, I would love to hear it. Oh gosh. I actually still remember making one of these in a high school class where a teacher gave us that classic three column uh, chart. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I still remember it. I was probably 14 and what jumped right off the page at me instantly was thou whoresome rump fed rabbit sucker. <laughs> Which I didn't even understand at the time. And now that I do, I'm like questionable choices, Adam, questionable choices. But you know what? It really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. And you know what? Who says they're wrong choices? I think that's the right choice hey, you know what? It's still with me. So guys, if you're out at a protest and some people are being assholes, just call them a rabbit sucker. That's going to stop them right in their path. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. This Thank you so much for having so... me. This has been fun. And that was my talk with Adam Hembry. He is just a delightful cauldron of knowledge. And I really got a kick out of sidetracking to Taylor Swift there. That was the highlight of my morning. I've included links in the episode description below for all of the things we touched on in this episode, including that Taylor Swift music video so you can see what we're talking about there. Truly iconic pre-bad bitch Swift days. <laughs> but more importantly, the Sooth Player social media, if you'd like to know more about their shows and what they're getting up to, the improv groups that we mentioned that are based here in Melbourne, our prominent literary festivals, as well as a YouTube link to the Black AF Roundtable discussing being black in the RPG space and the resulting racism that comes often from that. If that's something that interests you as well, please, please give it a watch. It's a really fantastic and important discussion. I'll also include links if you are wanting to find ways to support the Black Lives Matter movement and educate yourself in how to be the best ally you can be. I've recently donated $100 to the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, which helps First Nations people navigate a justice system which has been built to undermine them so if that's something that really resonates with you or you want to help support that you can find that link below so you can donate as well look a, a positive thing about Shakespeare even though he's a dead white boy as we touched on in this episode is that his works have been reinvented and reevaluated through different diverse lenses over the centuries which is necessary which should be encouraged and something I'm really excited to delve further into through this show however that is the show for this week Stay safe out there on the world of the stage and fight back against rabbit suckers. <laughs> Thanks for that one, Adam. Thank you for listening to Bite Your Thumb. Intro and outro music is Minstrel Guild by Kevin McCloyd. You can follow Bite Your Thumb on Instagram at biteyourthumbpod and for any questions, inquiries or a sonnet, you can shoot us an email at biteyourthumbpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>